Hello, it's Jeff. Just before we get to the show, just a friendly reminder to hit follow or subscribe on your podcast app so it's downloaded and ready to go. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. I want to live at the Blue Hotel. Our little boy is four years old. And quite a little man So we spell out the words we don't want him to understand Like T-O-Y or maybe S-U-R-P-R-I-S-E But the words we're hiding from him now Tear the heart right out of me our D-I-V-O-R-C-E becomes final today me and little J-O-E will be going away I love you both and this will be pure A-G-double-L for me The great Tammy Wynette getting us started in an episode not only about endings, but more importantly, about what's next and the hope of new beginnings. That's where our special guest in episode 17 of the Blue Hotel podcast comes in to share some of her story and some of the wisdom she's gained as a relationship and personal growth coach. Some of the things that can help when suffering the pains of something not right and making it better or getting out of something that's not working and setting yourself up for success for yourself first and for future relationships. So that's the interview this time. And then I'm going to bring you another erotic bedtime story. That is how most every one of these episodes climaxes. And this time it'll be the conclusion of a two-parter called Two Heads Are Better Than One. First, let's meet our special guest. Divorce can lead to the most incredible experiences in your life. Our special guest today said that. You know what else? She brightens every room she walks into knowing that the best accessory a person can wear is a smile. She's a relationship and personal growth coach. Not just that, she's a certified life coach and Gottman method trained relationship coach. Welcome to the Blue Hotel, Jamie Morgan. Hello. That was, I think, the best welcome I've ever received. <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. You're incredibly welcome. That's the shortest one I've ever done. I'm, I'm trying to get better at being more concise in the way I present. So you're the first. It was perfectly done. I loved it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I love these conversations. Me too. When we agreed to set a time to talk, Jamie, upon my discovery of you on Instagram at the Jamie Morgan, we decided that given the challenges so many people face, and some face repeatedly, mm-hmm. it's high time to change the so-called narrative around divorce. Tell us about, if you would, the importance of changing the way we look at it. 
Given the fact that approximately at this point, depending where you are in the world, 50% of marriages end in divorce, that it's time to change how we think about it. And it's not to make light of something that's hard. For a lot of us, divorce, it's an ending. It's tough. It can feel really painful sometimes. But given that so many of us go through it, like I believe so many things in our lives, it's the tough stuff that allows for those opportunities of growth. And if we can shift our perspective with it, especially when we're going through it, because there can be so much shame or guilt or fear when you're going through it about your future and you get stuck in the past and all the stuff. If you can combine that and like combine your healing with the process of looking forward with a little bit of excitement because there is opportunity. There is opportunity for expansion and really recreating your life with even more precision around what you want. Agreed. You know, you mentioned the S word shame, and it's one of the tenets of this podcast, The Blue Hotel, is to be shame free. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad you touched on that. Now, of course, there's people listening, men and women, that are thinking about making a change. And there's a lot of reasons or a lot of things, a lot of barriers, a lot of walls in between the now and the new. Mm-hmm. The change can be super difficult, and it may take years and some people never do it their life runs out before they made a change you deal with a lot of people that are in the process of have gone through the process who are trying to recover from the difficulty of being separated but what about the people that are just thinking about it how do you give them um, inspiration and hope to make those difficult choices that may take a family apart may mean uh, economic heartache, certainly challenges, because a lot of people stay together. This is the one thing I say, Jamie, it's when that conversation in the early days of a relationship goes like this, hey, honey, um, you know, if we lived in one place together, we'd save, you know, X amount of dollars. And that can't be the first reason to, to live together, but it's usually one of the considerations when people do, and whether they're married technically whether they live in common law, um, it's still kind of the same thing because you're attached and you're in the same house and time passes and the way things go may not be great. So what do you say to the people that are in that sort of place where they're thinking about change that needs to be made? Yeah, it's interesting, right? It's a tough one. And it's a lot of people might, those that know my story, I, I guess I'm pretty proud of how full circle I've come because the reality for me is my husband left me and I was devastated and it was sudden. It was after 13 years of marriage and I didn't see it coming. And there's so many reasons. I was just shell shocked and devastated. So had you have asked me at that moment, my feelings on all of this, it was a lot different. I was so hurt and so entrenched in all of those feelings and that's all valid. And, and yes, we have two, we had two little boys who have gotten a bit of five years older since then, but they were five and seven at the time. So of course I wanted that family unit to stay together for the kids. And, and I honestly didn't see the same reasons for the split at the time. Right. That being said, Five years later, through a lot of healing and perspective and time, 
I can't say I'll ever understand his reasons completely, but I do get it now that he had reasons. And for two people to stay together, if they're not each completely committed and happy, it's not fair to either one of them, right? Nor is it fair to your kids, because I think the misconception is the kids are better off if we stay. In some cases, maybe that's true. I mean, I, I do believe every story is is unique. But a lot of times you see families staying together for that single purpose. And the kids are growing up and you'll hear stories later going, well, I knew all along, all my parents did was fight. Like, I wish they would have ended it sooner. Also, I lost my parents within six weeks of each other. Um, they were elderly, so it wasn't... Um, I mean, it's always sad. It just, um, it wasn't a tragic ending early in life, but it was still such a huge loss. But also I was there for both of their last breaths. And if anybody who's listening or yourself has ever been witness to people, they love taking their last breaths. It gives you a whole lot of time to sit and ponder the meaning of life and, and all of the, the big questions we all have. Right. And what, really got out of not just their passings, but other other things that have happened, like all the big, hard things we deal with in life is that we are here once. We have one shot. It's not that I say, well, if you're just miserable, go get a divorce. I think you work at it. You do personal growth. I think the greatest work you can do on your relationship is the work you do on yourself. You work at it, you do your best, but at the end of the day, after you've done the work and you've tried to grow yourself and communicate and do all the tools and the things you can do, if you genuinely, your hearts know that this isn't meant to be, then I, I don't think divorce is the worst case scenario. I think wasting your life, not being completely authentic and happy is the worst case scenario. To me, at the end of the day, that would make me so sad, right? And But it's difficult. As, as much as people think, oh my God, how can anybody be divorced two, three, four, five, go to Hollywood six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. When you're in it, you're doing the best you can. It's only, it's only when you read it on paper later in life and you think, oh my gosh, how did I do all that? How did I go through all that? Why and how? But in, when, you, when you're doing it, you're doing the best you can, aren't you? Maybe your ex-husband was doing the best he could. You know, you connect the dots in reverse, as they say, and you look back. Did you later see when it was all said and done some of the things that maybe were at play that you couldn't see when you were in it? Our relationship, there was a lot of love. But it wasn't what I would say was an easy relationship. From the get-go, we were both fire meets fire and had our tempers and had our opinions, right? And what I'm so grateful for is him as much as me, which isn't always the case, was willing to do the work. And we did a lot of counseling. That's how I got into the Gottman Method was because our therapist for 15 years of a relationship, because we were in and out of therapy for all of that, but it wasn't. It wasn't even that it was always that bad, but that's just the type of, well, it's the type of person I am for sure is to lean into if there's any kind of a problem, I'm always wanting to grow. So we had gone into therapy to make our relationship as good as it could be. And our therapist was Gottman trained. And I can, you know, without him being here to speak for himself, but my ex-husband, I'm certain would say that none of that was a waste and it definitely did work because that's the other thing is given that I'm Gottman trained myself now people would say well why would you go do that if it didn't work for you guys but I said no that's not the reason our marriage ended 
there's other other situations that that led to the demise of things and it's you know it had to do my ex-husband you know had some very serious health diagnosis that lead a person to go here's your life what do you want to do with it because it might not be much longer and i think he felt very much that this was an opportunity to truly live his most authentic life uh, i like some of the tenets of the Gottman method that you uh, studied and you uh, follow with your uh, clients. Tell us a bit about the basics of the Gottman method. Well, John and Julie Gottman are a couple out of Seattle, Washington, and I just believe so wholeheartedly their method is backed with science. They have what's called the Love Lab. It's been there for decades. And so couples are able to willingly sign up to go and spend a weekend in the love lab where they are monitored, whether it be through heart rate, video cameras, and different monitoring systems, again, all knowingly, they spend a weekend as a couple in this, it's like an apartment, but it's all set up with things to monitor everything to do with their interactions, their behaviors, and how their body is affected by it. They're doing blood samples, they're doing heart rate, they're doing all that kind of stuff, as well as seeing the behaviors and the conversations they're having. Through decades of following certain couples, John Gottman in particular was able to come up with very, very specific behaviors that couples do or actions that couples do that stay together over the years because all of these couples that they followed and had repeatedly come back to the lab and then follow up with them. Are they still together? Are they not together? How's the marriage going? All of these details they have tracked over time and they've been able to come up with very, very specific behaviors that they call the, you know, the masters of relationships, what they are doing versus what couples are doing that is leading to the downfall of a relationship. Yes, you might have all the makings for and be showing all the behaviors of a couple that is doomed. But if you choose each of you to change your interactions and your behaviors within the relationship, you can change the trajectory of that marriage. So even if you're at rock bottom, there's hope if you have two people that are willing to change their behaviors. And to me, that's the coolest thing ever because it's just that. It gives you hope that, okay, if it actually is, we do love each other. If we are both willing to self-reflect, challenge our own behaviors and, you know, take a hard look in the mirror at how we're actually showing up and acting towards each other, there is a good chance we can make this marriage work. Now, I'm super curious about those things, those actions and those behaviors that were um, identified as being the reasons why couples continue to be together. So the method would be to encourage these behaviors in a, in a, in a couple. Tell us a bit more about that. Well, a lot of, I mean, there's lists of them, right? I tend to just go by the ones that I, I, I work with the most. Cause of course I pick my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> what but, are they? And I just think that they're so applicable to, almost all of us, right? But it's bids of affection and turning towards. These are terms they use a lot where it's where you're turning towards your partner to, it's almost like a reaching out. So even when it might be a difficult conversation or conflict that you can still turn towards and 
whether it's with physical touch or some bit of affection, acknowledging that there's still a connection, it breeds more connection. It's, it's communicating and learning the skills of communication, which to me, the most important part of communication is listening. And when you can start to work on your own behaviors in those ways, but also recognizing that conflict is normal. The goal is to be able to have conflict because we're two humans, we're different people, but it's, it's to be able to do it in a way that can actually bring us closer together when you learn the skills of communicating and being able to listen effectively, but also understanding that majority of the conflict we have as couples is unsolvable. I'm sure all of us out there can think of one thing that we we fight about over and over and over again. Maybe it's a little fight. Maybe it's nothing big or maybe it is, but it's a repeated, whether it's about money or whether it's about chores or something. And there's some things that, you know, we all get very stuck in our position of like, I'm right, you're wrong. And it feels good to be right. It re, You know, it feels really good when we feel like we're the right one. But a lot of the times we're both right. You know, so we can get stuck in gridlock because we're both trying to be right about something that's unsolvable. And so it's being able to recognize within our conflicts, we're allowed to express our feelings about it. And that's important. But at the same time, sometimes, you know, well, let's just agree to disagree. There's certain things within people's relationships that that is actually a really good to, to learn to know what's worth the fight and what's not. If it's a, if it's unsolvable, then you're just spinning your wheels. Yeah. You know, the old expression, the old adage, um, choose the hill carefully on which you want to die. I mean, is this a deal breaker? Is this that important? Do we need to discuss it for the 19th month in a row? Or can we say, this is the way you feel? Okay. I hear you. This is the way I feel. Do you hear me? Can we find a place to live with the difference? how we're feeling. And maybe down the road, we'll feel a little closer on that thing. But for now, we don't. And if it's not a deal breaker, let's not dwell upon it, right? It's so perfectly said in that it's it's having the conversation, allowing yourself and your partner to voice how you feel about a topic, about a problem, and then realizing like, okay, so is there a middle ground or like, where can we find a way to be able to have this not affect our day-to-day lives over and over and over again. So it's it's learning to find solutions that way. Now, Jamie, um, from what I've read about you and seen on your Instagram and your website, you focus on working with women. Do you work exclusively with women? As I've worked for five years now coaching, I've kind of gone up and down and played around and found my sweet spot, I guess. And so I really love to work right now with women who are working towards confidence and transitioning to that next stage of their lives after divorce. It seems to be who I have attracted into my my business so beautifully. And I really just get so fulfilled by that work. And I do feel that I can make a difference in helping women to let go of their past through processing their feelings and at the same time being able to move forward rather than staying stuck. But my husband, Justin, he's also getting Gottman trained as we speak. And he's a high school teacher, has been for almost 30 years now. And him and I are going to take over the relationship end of things together in the form of events and retreats. So 
rather than doing specific relationship work with couples one-on-one, we are going to be doing events more locally right now. And then eventually retreats, we'd like to travel with them is our goal. But to invite couples in to learn the tools for healthy relationships, to also have a really connecting experience and sharing the things we've learned along the ways, sharing the Gottman tools, all that kind of thing, but in a really cool and unique experience where it's a really fun weekend for couples or a fun evening for couples while at the same time they can come and learn a few things. Tell me this. I mean, there are couples in in different places in the experience that is being a couple. You've got couples that are still together after a long time and still making a great go of it. You've got couples that are not sure that this is going to be a great idea long term or longer term. They've come to this roadblock. They might be getting ready for divorce. You've got single people that are thinking about finding that person, that next person that, you know, they can do better with and be a better person with as a couple. What do you imagine to be the couples that would join you for these retreats? Would they be the couples that are that are new like you and, and Justin became not so long ago? Yeah. I, I, we invite everybody in. To me, it's anybody who's in a relationship that's serious, that genuinely wants to learn tools to create what I call easy love. If we're being honest, it does. It takes work. If you want to find out your sore spots, get in a relationship and you'll find them out really quick, like your triggers and what bothers you, right? Relationships are tough. But there's so much opportunity for the growth. And when you can get into that and start learning and growing yourself and at the same time experiencing how that grows your relationship, there are ways to make it feel what I call easy love. And I got that. I coined that term because of my parents. My parents were married for 62 years never heard them fight a day in my life ever. And I'm not saying that's normal, like we were talking about before. Um, a conflict is normal. But my parents were a very special, special couple. And anybody who knew them would say the same thing. My dad was so in love with my mom to the end. They were so, and my mom equally, my dad just was so, you could just see it. He just adored my mother. They were together. My mom was 16 and my dad was 18 when they eloped. My mom had my sister when she was 16 years old. Two years later, they had my other sister. And then 17 years later, they accidentally had me. (laughs) But they were together through all of that to the very end of their lives. Like I say, they died six weeks to the day apart from each other, which is no surprise. And my dad passed away first of pneumonia. And my mom had Alzheimer's, but nothing else was wrong with her. Four weeks to the day after my dad died, she was diagnosed with heart failure. She's never had a heart problem in her life. And two weeks later, she passed. And to me, that was heartache, even through her Alzheimer's and not really consciously understanding that my dad, we had told her once, we, my sisters and I promised each other, we, we felt we owed it to her to tell her once, even though we knew she wouldn't remember but that my dad had passed, which is the hardest thing to tell somebody. It's just awful. But after that, she, about two minutes later, she didn't remember and that was okay. And we just sort of, we carried on. She was in nursing care in a home. You could just tell though, she didn't know, but she knew. 
inner heart. And it wasn't really that surprising when we found out that her, she was in heart failure. Their marriage, when I look back on it, I grew up and I'd, I'd never heard my parents fight ever. The worst I'd ever heard my mom say to my father was, oh, well, not even to him, to me. She'd go, your father's driving me crazy. And she'd just kind of growl and then walk away and then that would be it. And so, you know, if, you know, my dad's famous for saying, you know, don't don't sweat the small stuff. And they just had this epitome to me of what seemingly, and I really do believe that I don't think there was anything being hidden, was a very easy kind of a love. And so when Justin, my husband now says to me, like, what do you need from our relationship? And I always say, I just want it to feel easy. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. I don't want the drama. I don't want big ups and downs. And I'm, I'm totally here for real life. Don't get me wrong. Like I'm here for the real stuff. But I want to have trust and faith in each other and benefit of the doubt and that feeling that it just kind of feels easy, that you get to know each other and trust each other enough that you can go with the flow, right? Because there's that much confidence in what you have. I'm not saying every day is like that. For some people, it might be like everybody's different, but I'm saying that that to me is the goal. So, you know, I wrote a workbook and it's called the Easy Love Workbook. And I had a few people comment here and there on, you know, social media, whatever, but saying, well, there's nothing easy about love. Like, what a stupid name. And I was like, no, I get it. You're right. You're absolutely right. It's hard, but that's, it's more the goal. The goal is whatever that easy love is for you. And I think that that's different for all of us. You know, what is your idea of what easy love would be? And then make that the goal in your relationship and kind of have, have that as your, of what you're working towards. Well, there's lots of easy things about love. It's only when it, when it's mired in miscommunications or non-communications that things don't feel so easy and, uh, and resentments are a big part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you said 62 years. That's amazing. Um, my, my mom and dad made it to 61 years and 11 months. And then my dad passed. Oh, very close. <laughs> right? Very close, right. And so it's, it's been, uh, it's been just over, it's been just over a year that, uh, that happened. And my mom is, still alive and she says and she still lives alone in the place they live together and she still says she says i miss him every day and i don't know how i'm doing this that is being here without him because they were high school sweethearts so yeah yeah, love and it was a pretty easy love because i could see it when i would go to visit them they still had that thing for one another even though they could, you know, argue and all the things people do, they still had the thing, the look. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and I, I was actually telling this story last night to a friend of mine, my parents, I was living with them again. My condo was being built. My parents were sitting down watching TV side by side. And my dad said to my mom, Patsy, will you get me a bowl of ice cream? And my mom said, sure. And she stood up to go get him a bowl of ice cream. And I was maybe in a very feminist phase of my life. And I I said, dad, like, why don't you get your own ice cream? Like, don't be so lazy. Mom's sitting right next to you doing the same thing you are. Why should she have to get you your ice cream? And my mom got angry with me. And she said, now, Jamie, she said, everything you've ever had in your life, and you have to understand, they were very traditional old school relationship and and I there's no judgment whatever kind of relationship you have if it works for you I think it's amazing 
but my dad worked and my mom was at home. She did do bookkeeping at home for my dad's business, but majority of her life, she raised children and took care of the home and worked very hard at what she did there. She said, everything we've ever had, every single thing is because of how hard your dad has worked. And if he comes home at the end of the day and wants me to get him a bowl of ice cream because he's tired and would like that, I have no problem doing that for him. I love doing things for your father. Don't let it bother you. And I sat and I thought and I said, I apologized. And I, I said, you're right. I'm sorry. I get it. Like I really did in that moment get it that our relationships now, not everybody's, but a lot of us have double incomes. We need to have two people working. We share the chores of raising children and all the things. It's more, it's it's different now, right? Whereas whatever they did, they certainly had it figured out. And it wasn't for me to get in there and start changing it on them. It worked and they understood their roles and were very happy to do them. It just worked so beautifully. And I really, really learned a lot in that moment about judgment, I guess. Putting my idea of how relationships should be was based on my relationship because well, at the time I didn't have kids, but my relationship now and what I saw in my relationships was there was two working people and two people taking care of kids where that kind of thing. And so it was, it's much different. But I think that that was something they really did have going for them was they were very comfortable in their roles within the relationship. And it's interesting now because it does bring up a lot of different conflict in relationships now that wasn't as much an issue back in the day, I don't think. I'm I'm guessing there was other problems, perhaps, but there were a million other problems, but that wasn't one of them, maybe for some. <laughs> no, I'm glad that you questioned it because there are probably a, a lot of couples that there are resentments built over the years. Even if he went to work and she raised the kids, there were resentments being built around all kinds of things, and those questions needed to be asked. Uh, and, and certainly discussed, it was great that your parents had figured it out and were able to articulate how they found it and why it was working. I love mm -hmm. that. I, I dug a little more into, into the Gottman uh, method, and, and I like this part. Uh, couples, one of the major tenets is that couples require five times more positive interactions than negative negative things like defensiveness and contempt mm -hmm. uh, and the positive ones that, uh, you know, help heal more than, more than hurt. So we're, we're striving to have these things that we do as a couple that bring healing and bring, and bring calm and bring positivity uh, rather than negativity. So there's a lot of couples that find themselves apart, separating, going through all of the difficulties that come with that. Mm -hmm. because it doesn't always go easy. I was lucky, Jamie. You know, you know, I had uh, intelligent uh, partners who when we came to the end, there was enough self-respect and respect of the other that we said, let's look at the assets. What do we have? Okay, we have this and we have this and we have this. Let's look at the debt. We have this and we have this and we have this. Um, why don't we just agree financially how? and move forward instead of getting lawyers that will take a lot of that um, and put it in their pocket. And it always worked out that we didn't have to get a lawyer other than, you know, back in the day, you had to get a lawyer. You couldn't just get paperwork um, to, to, to file and, to, and to, to process. 
And, and it always worked out wonderfully. And people say, how did you do that? I said, well, number one, I wasn't a multimillionaire. But number two, there was a, there was a mutual respect that said, we've come to the end. You know, I, in, in episode nine, I interviewed Rainier Wilde. And one of the things he talks a lot about is how to um, leave mm-hmm. with a degree of grace. You, you fell in love. You got together. You had this time together. There were many good times. Now you find yourself at the end. How can you leave it with a degree of grace? And how can you leave it so that you're not hating the other person? Mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty important. Speak to that. Speak to endings that set you up for better new beginnings. Well, I always, I love this. I love this topic. Like I said, I work a lot with women who are going through or have gone through divorce. And I really, really wholeheartedly believe that we are both better off the more we can try to do it. Like you say, with grace, I always say I really, for myself, because the only person I can control is me, is to really continually reflect on what can I do right now in this situation that I'm going to be proud of a year, five, 10 years down the road. And that I can be proud of, of, for me, how I showed up as a parent during this as well. And I've always, from day one, put my kids first. And I'm very lucky, like you have been, in that my ex, as much as I was all the things at first, I was hurt hurt was the biggest one. But as we know, sometimes we're hurt and it comes out. There's a lot of anger through that process as well. I was, there was a lot of stuff. Initially, I was um, able to thankfully not use my children in a negative way, use them as my help to help me rise through it because I wanted to not only be proud of myself, I wanted to make them proud and I wanted to be sure that I didn't fuck them up. That was my that was my biggest fear. I said to my therapist at the time going through this, like I was so scared that this was just going to screw them up and leave them a mess. And he said to me the best advice ever. And he just said, those kids are kids are so resilient and they're smart and they will be fine as long as you don't put them in the middle and you don't, you know, talk negatively about the other parent. And I took that as gospel and I believe it. And I can tell you, my kids are extremely well adjusted. And of course there's times that they, especially my youngest still kind of goes, well, God, it'd be so much easier if everybody just lived together. Like that's his solution to everything, but they're happy kids. And, and really, truly, they just have more and more people to love them. And I'm, I'm really grateful because they do have a father that's an amazing dad and who loves them so much. And I know that's not always the case. But I believe that it is self-reflection on how can I use this difficult time in my life to grow? What are, how can I learn and grow from this? How can I become better, even though this is really, really hard right now? And when it comes to divorce, it's really about figuring out who you are, who you want to be, where you want to be, what you want to be doing moving forward. And I really just ask a lot of people who are kind of stuck in that resentment. Is that how you want to feel in 10 years? Because that's easy. Just keep hanging on, right? Like just keep your death grip on that anger and the hurt. I'm not saying it's easy to let go. It's not easy. And it's not a one-time thing. It's a process, but it is something that you can do in a really healthy way over time 
if you choose to lean into the feelings and feel them and acknowledge them for what they are, and then continually coming back to choosing who you are right now and how you want to move forward. Jamie, let's talk about self and Mm -hmm. preparing yourself to be ready to meet someone new in your life. So divorce has happened. Some time has passed. You're working on yourself. There's some of us, present company, who foolishly many times for many years, hashtag slow learner, had this thing called destination uh, happiness, this view that when I got the thing or got the person in my life, everything would just suddenly work out. I wasn't focused enough on how I was supposed to be better. And then someone once said to me, be the person you want to be with. In other words, right? <laughs> be better. Um, you you, you want to meet someone who's positive, who's who's this and this and this and this on your checklist. Are you those things? Be those things before you'll get those things kind of thing. Um, you seem to have found the person that makes a lot of sense for you. Mm-hmm. Talk about the work we do when the relationship is over and we're dealing with those emotions and we're getting past those resentments or um, just hurt feelings. And now we're getting ready to be ready. What are the things we have to be thinking about? What are the things we have to be doing to be stronger and more ready? I think that we can attract continually the same person in different forms over and over again, right? And until we learn those lessons. And to me, the biggest lesson, most of us, most of my clients that I work with, that I myself did this work too, is I really do believe it's really, really, really hard to feel love from another person, truly feel loved and have that healthy relationship until you learn to love yourself. And it's pretty cliche. And we hear those kind of things a lot about self-love and love yourself. But when it really comes down to it, do you love yourself? Do you know yourself? Are you confident in who you are? And what do you want? And these questions are seemingly pretty simple, but when it comes down to it, I just had a woman that I'm working with communicate to me this morning, Jamie, I've been working on, I don't know what I want. She goes, Jesus, like I, it's such a, I feel so stupid asking you this question, but how do I do this? Right. And because it seems on the surface like a real, like, of course I know what I want. I want to be happy. Right. But we need to get specific. What does, what does that mean? And why do you want, like, we, we really have to know what we want. And quite honestly, you got to start at the beginning. And that's, that's back at who are you? And as we get to digging into that question, who am I? Like, who was I? And the, how I always word it is who were you before you got told who you should be? or who your parents thought you were, or who boyfriends or ex-husbands or everybody kept giving you the input of who you are, that you believed everything. You know, it's not to say everybody was wrong, but there's bits and we, we tend to carry everything that everybody's ever told us. And we, we take that in as, as truth. It's not always true. And I've had that happen in my life that, you know, and it wasn't out of malice, but there was things my family had said to me and things that I really took on as that was my personality. I thought I was type A, I was nervous. These are all things my my dad used to say, oh, you're just like your sister. You're so nervous. You're so sensitive. You're so all of these things. 
and don't get my love my dad and he didn't mean you know again we we do we do as much as we've been taught that being said i grew up thinking i was like this really difficult difficult person and by no means was i perfect and i'm sure i was very difficult in certain situations but it wasn't until just a few years ago i had a coworker go oh my god you're the most easygoing person i love working with you you've You've made it so easy out of everybody here. Like, and just the way, and I stood there and I couldn't believe my ears. I'd never been told that in my life, that I was easygoing and relaxed and I, all of these things. And then I started doing the work of talking to friends. I actually get clients to do this as an exercise, but, you know, asking friends via email to tell me who I am to them, not what I do, but who I am. And just hearing these people who know me very well and how they saw me, really saw me, was so fascinating because it wasn't who I thought I was. Because all these years, I thought I was who my parents and who my exes and everybody, there was all these other things, right? And so when, when a person is going through divorce and I'm getting them to come back to who they are, it can take peeling back some of those layers of going, oh, I thought that's who I was, but that's, and because we, and we wonder why our confidence is so shot and it's not aligned. So that's why it's, when it's not aligned and it, it doesn't sit right, but yet, and you don't feel good about it. So you don't feel good about yourself. When we start to really get down to the deep part of who were you before any of that, when you were born and were you worthy of love when you were born? you know, all of these kind of things. It's really, really cool to see in even one hour, the shift a person can make when they start to really get down to the truth of who they are and who they've always been and how almost immediately, I'm not saying it just goes from zero to a hundred, but the confidence shifts in naturally. I think we always think that that's got to be such a huge amount of work to build this confidence. And this is work. But it's interesting how fast it can happen when we actually start understanding the truth about who we are and starting to love ourselves. And for me, I realize now through looking at my relationship now with Justin that it's it's in loving myself that I finally am able to feel love from another person because I've never felt so much, so loved in my life. I mean, and he's very good at loving me and he's a very loving person. But I think up until now, there's probably been other people that were quite loving too, but I just couldn't feel it. Gosh, you've got me thinking about a lot of things. One, start with this. A lot of times, uh, parents will A, um, only uh, highlight the wonderful things about you. I was fortunate in that. Fortunate in that. It was, it was a pretty loving and lovely place to be. The downside of that was maybe they could have been a little critical. Mm -hmm. um, in a, in a positive way, mm -hmm. because maybe I blew myself up into this too wonderful a person. Um, the other thing some parents will do, the opposite of that is only point out the negative. And I have, we all have friends that had parents that did that. And that was, um, debilitating for some kids. And then that transferred right through their lives. The extremes are never wonderful. The other thing I thought about, as you talked about, seeing yourself and loving yourself. And I really loved the idea of not just having people do it face to face, because a lot of people aren't going to be able to do that, but having them send you an email, you know, mm -hmm. if we've got two, three really close friends, we're lucky and having them send an email because it's easier to be honest 
that way, you're in a different room by yourself and you're like, well, how do I really boil it down? What my friend Jamie is like, oh, well, here it is. And they can be both positive and constructively critical at, if, if they're doing it right. The other thing was, and this is it, the one that is most evident to me as you talked about that was our ability to not only look at the things that are good about our personality and good about us in a relationship, but holding the mirror up and saying the dark side of it. What are the things I really have not been good at? What are the things that have been damaging? What are the things that have not been good for relationships in my past? What are the things I need to work on to make this next one better? That to me is the biggest you know, necessity in analyzing who you are. Got to have the self-love, got to have that confidence, got to have the mirror held up in a way that, that points out the stuff you really need to work on too. I mean, I've only been doing it lately again mm -hmm. because, you know, you do it sometimes and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. I learned. I changed that thing. Sometimes our changes are um, by the fraction, mm -hmm. not by the grandiose change we need to make about something that's in us that's not really positive. So lately I've been thinking about what are the patterns I've created that aren't positive. And what are the things I really need to, you know, bear down on and change, like legitimately change about um, probably my outlook um, more than anything. How you see things is how things are. Mm -hmm. And how you see things is through your own lens. Did you have to do any of that tough work about your own way forward so that your time with your new man would be better than the time you had with your previous one? Absolutely, a hundred percent. I I realized how much my insecurities and my fears were governing my behaviors and my relationship, and was creating. And I'm not solely. I really, you know, <laughs> don't get me wrong. I could point out a. I could point out equally his faults too. But I'm just saying because I do believe two people bring their stuff into a marriage. We all have baggage. If we've lived a life at all, we come into relationship with our baggage. And mine was the, the insecurities and fears of being left. And that left me with a really anxious attachment with really, really, really a lot of fear of being, ironically, of being left. And isn't it interesting that that's, that's exactly what happened in the end. And, you know, I think really, it's no surprise. It's no surprise. It had to happen for me. It just was like, okay, she's not getting it. We've been smacking her across the face for this long. She still doesn't get it. Okay. We're going to, we're going to hand it to her on a silver platter and maybe she'll figure it out. And it is, I had to, I had to lean into my fears and realize that I could learn from them. And when we acknowledge our fears and lean in a little bit, we realize what's on the other side is actually pretty fantastic. And being alone was what I needed. So six weeks prior to him leaving the marriage, he was gone in Mexico doing a healing retreat where I kind of had a feeling, I didn't know, but I really dug into some personal work while he was gone. And I it was like I really leaned into that being alone feeling. And it's interesting. I, I'm a really big advocate for facing fears, first acknowledging them, because a lot of times we don't realize how much of our life 
is dictated by the things we're afraid of. But I'm somewhat of an addict now, I think, of facing fears or doing scary things, doing the things that scare me, because I've realized that there is so much joy and excitement and learning that can come from it. I have two more things for you, Jamie. One is um, the importance of, because you always hear about the importance of, and everyone says it goes back to when you were young. But do you deal with it is the next question. I'm about to go into uh, three months of uh, psychotherapy that's going to finally deal with it at my age because I've been avoiding it. On one hand, you know it to be true because everybody says it. And when I say everybody, everybody with knowledge and understanding and a PhD. And, and, And yet you don't do it. So, you know, the things that happen to you as a very young person, um, end up contributing so massively to how you have relationships. You talked about attachment. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if, if you had uh, fear of being abandoned as a child, that goes through your life until you really deal with it. And there's other things too. So talk about, if you would, the importance of dealing in a, in a psychotherapy way um, with someone who knows more than you mm-hmm. about the things that happened when you were young. I'd have my psychology degree and I love this stuff. I was in therapy, relationship therapy for 15 years. But prior to that, I'd done so much therapy on my own as well. I'm a huge advocate for doing the work and digging in. And yes, I think there is so much in starting to to raise our awareness because sometimes it's really interesting what we choose maybe not choose unconsciously even block out to raise our awareness to it. And because I really do believe you have to feel it to heal it. That means you kind of got to, you got to talk about it or write about it, or you have to acknowledge it on some level. And it's so fascinating because I talk about this a lot. I have the huge fear of being left, of being abandoned. And there's a lot of theories in my life. I had a beautiful childhood. I think like I keep saying to myself, did I block something out that I still haven't remembered? But then there's all, you know, I've heard more lately too, or more talk around, you know, ancestral passing down of of those genes ancestrally that you carry it with you. And again, I think that's even more reason to feel it, feel it, to heal it and do the work so that I don't carry, so that my children don't have to keep carrying this, right? I really think, or whether it was maybe not even so far down the line, maybe it was something my parents hadn't healed and, and but I really do, for me, I feel like I have been the chosen one in my family to, to dig in because for whatever reason, from the time I was 12 years old, I put myself in therapy, which is unusual <laughs> to say the least. But I, that's just a part of my nature is I, if I feel something's wrong, I am somebody who wants to find somebody who knows more than I do to help me figure it out. And so I think there's so much in talk therapy and all the kinds of therapy you can do. And then for me as a coach, I love taking people from where we are now to where we want to go moving forward. And of course, we talk about the past a little bit, but I'm not there to psychoanalyze it as much. It's more just to acknowledge, allow the feelings to pass and process, process those feelings and layer by layer, 
shed a bit of that weight. Like I, I like to see it as, as we're carrying these heavy backpacks with all of our stuff that we've gathered all the, that's not serving us anymore. And we carry it like, you know, like hoarders throughout our life. And I feel like when we can, with purpose, choose to let it go layer by layer by feeling it and healing it, and then choosing our future with conscious choice from where we are now, knowing exactly where we want to go, beautiful things can happen. Talked at the beginning a bit about the nuance of language. So there's the failed marriage, and there's the marriage ended, and there's a difference. Um, tell us more. It has to do with perspective and how you walk away and how you enter the next phase of your life and how important it is to, to, to see it in a positive light. Tell us a bit about that. I do think that there's, for me, it's, it's a game comes down to going, how do I want to feel about this moving forward? And if we choose, because I do believe a lot of it is choice to see it as a failed marriage and, and it was just all it's negative because it didn't go my way or whatever it is. To me, there's no growth and learning in that. I feel that everything we go through in our life, it does give us opportunity to learn and grow. If anything, gain more compassion and understanding towards others because we are connected in so many ways with others. And when we can share the tough stuff we've gone through and see that it had worth because we came out of it, understanding ourselves more, then I can see that as a gift and more of a positive. I don't want to, I don't want to have regrets in life. And I think that if we continually choose to grow and have that growth mindset, right, forever, then nothing is wasted. It's all for purpose, right? Of we can use it rather than it being a negative. I love it. I agree. <laughs> Where can people find you and find out more about what you have to offer from your office? Uh, which, by the way, uh, people can't see this. Let me describe it. Uh, Jamie is sitting in, in what looks to be a really um, well thought out office with a collage of photographs surrounding her. I can see two of the walls and there must be, I'm doing an estimate of 25 yeah. um, nicely framed collaged photos. There's a map, there's a heart, but mostly photos of what I suspect are family and friends yeah. in Kelowna, beautiful Kelowna, British Columbia, a place I love so much to ride motorbike. Where do people go to find out how to access you in that beautiful space? Well, I am most often on Instagram at at the Jamie Morgan and Facebook is Jamie Morgan Coaching. J A I M E. That's that's, right. that's the nice spelling. Jamie right. Morgan. My mom and dad always said that was how girls. That was the girl way of spelling it. But there's a lot of girls. <laughs> I don't know. They just made my life complicated because most people spell it wrong. Yeah. But yes, that is J A I M E Morgan. And then my website's jamiemorgan.com. So there's lots of ways you can find me and there's lots of, you know, you can join my Abundant Life Facebook group where I post all my free meditations. I do really short, I call them tune-ins, like two to five minutes. I really believe that the, with all my clients, I do a little bit of mindfulness and to get grounded. And so it's a great place to go to just start that process of tuning into your body, noticing what you're feeling. 
And if you are going through a divorce and wanting to shift into that next beautiful stage of your life and learn the the tools of letting go of your past, I would love to do that work. There's the big one that we didn't get enough into for another conversation. The tools of letting go of your past, because until you can let go, how can you make space for what's to come? You have great tattoos. Hold your other arm up. Both wrists. Oh, that's great. What does that one say? It says, courage compassion and love. Perfect. And the other one's a really great butterfly. And what I love about your your tattoo on your right wrist is that it's not just a little wee thing. People make this commitment. I'm going to get a tattoo. I'm like, yeah. oh yeah, what are you going to get? I don't want it too big. I go, well, go big or go home. You you went big. That's really good. <laughs> the black butterfly? Yes. When did you get that? Oh my gosh. Well, if you saw my husband, he's covered in tattoos. I did see pictures. So I was inspired a lot by him, but I went and I made the mistake of getting, I said, I'm going to get a tattoo at the next place I drop into. We were in Victoria, BC and I got a horseshoe, like you said, a little one. And I didn't think anybody could screw up a horseshoe to me. Like it was a simple (laughs) one. It wasn't anything that I, I didn't even, I wanted it simple, basic horseshoe, right? Anyways. You know, the expression, you had one job. Yeah. Right, so you yeah. got a cover up. No, I got it covered. But yeah, so she went big, but I love it. And to me, the butterfly, it really represents, for me, that transformation through this, the personal growth through everything I went through. There it is. Well done. Jamie, thank you for your time. Thank you for having me. This was a great conversation. Jamie Morgan, everyone. She did it right at the Blue Hotel. So you know what's coming next, right? Another bedtime story. And you didn't have to hear part one to enjoy the one that's about to come. The conclusion of two heads are better than one. As we pick up not with two or three, but four bisexual adults. Right here in a second. Two heads are better than one. Part two. It's a story that finds dinner having been served at Willow's Loft. Her best friend Taylor's here, who's been catching up with her old pal Wyatt, rekindling the fire between the two longtime DJs who came up together in the clubs, still finding themselves undressing each other from time to time when in the city at the same time. Wyatt had been strolling down Queen West with Willow when they walked straight into Jesse who'd never met Wyatt before. But now, after dinner, was glad he did. His expectations for the evening, bread-breaking and a bit of wine, were suddenly exceeded because Taylor was in every kind of mood that night. Once the plates were cleared and the counter wiped down, she stretched herself across the kitchen island and let nature take its course, happily becoming dessert for Wyatt's willing mouth. And while he prodded to the edge of insanity that was her coming all over the counter, her mouth nearly brought Jesse beyond his edge, too. But he breathed through it, holding off by just that much. The three laughed together as Taylor sat up before the puddle she'd created. And as she slid her body off and stretched it out, feeling good, she really had Willow to thank. Aunt did so with a big wet kiss on the lips. 
for hosting what had become dinner and a movie. You see, Willow had captured the threesome on her iPhone. Taylor loved watching the play-by-play from every angle later when she was alone and getting off with her vibe. Home porn was her kink. And they were just getting started. You see, the cameras that had been set up over there and over there in the living room were about to witness new scenes. And Willow, with her hands free now, was about to make a guest star appearance. You remember how she looked earlier when Jesse bumped into her on the street that afternoon? Willow, with her curly blonde mane unbound to tumble below her shoulders, and the sway of her hips, ridiculously full lips, too, with a big, broad smile. And Jesse, with a swagger and a sway of his own, long and lean and thick, that thick. Wyatt was lean, too, and tall, with a thickness to match his new friend, so much so, with eyes closed, the feel of either man would be hard to tell apart. And Taylor, with her ragged jet black bangs and the rest of her hair all the way down to her ass crack. You remember how she got the party started with confidence and certainty? With these words, I want you both in my mouth and right here, right now, as she pointed between her thighs. So another few sips of red wine later, the four friends, with eyes diverted in the direction of the cameras, looked over at the deep, soft, vintage leather sectional. Willow and Taylor were friends, but had not let that get in the way of pleasing one another between the sheets once in a while. Willow and Jesse were lovers years ago, but he became loyal to the woman he was with and hadn't found himself naked with Willow in years. Now, Willow had never been with Wyatt. Again, Taylor certainly had. And then Jesse, being Jesse and having watched Wyatt's thick cock set free from his pants, wondered if his hunch was correct about Wyatt's wants. Just then, Willow said, Okay, you three, it's me time. Being the only one who hadn't gotten her tits out or pulled her pants down yet, as she slowly waddled her ass, make that her bubble butt, in the direction of the leather sectional, she stopped just shy of it, with her back to the others, feeling their eyes upon her. And she dropped her pants to the floor, smacked her own ass for effect, and pulled her top over her head and discarded it, too. Turning around and putting her hands on her hips and spreading her legs just a bit, she said, Okay, come. And the host got what the host wanted. Taylor wasted no time sliding the warmth of her tight little body right up to Willow again, kissing her deeper and longer than she had before. Soon, both women were tonguing each other's mouths, and Willow stopped and said, Your mouth tastes like Jesse's cock. And quickly resumed the kissing. Jesse and Wyatt's cocks were at full mast again as they moved themselves onto the leather sectional seated themselves, and continued to watch the goddesses go at it. Taylor backed Willow onto one part of the couch, pushed her down on her back, barely missing a beat with their mouths still at it. And just then Taylor's right hand took a big clump of Willow's hair and held on tight, and her left hand dropped below and felt the wetness that had welled up between Willow's legs. Taylor pulled her fingers up and fed them to Willow, and then buried them back inside her lips, and then she worked her clit like she'd done so many times before, knowingly, and she kept kissing her mouth, 
working her tongue and working her pussy with a rhythm that was guaranteed to take Willow to the top. And so she did. And Willow had a habit of almost screaming as she came, and it made Taylor proud. It made Jesse and Wyatt's cocks that much harder. And Taylor's fingers walked up Willow's body from her pretty dark bush, up between her breasts and squeezed her neck and kissed her hard again on the mouth and then softly on the forehead. And then the two friends sat up, half expecting a review or at least some applause from their audience, and Wyatt and Jesse playfully delivered just that. And just then Taylor said this, Who's going to fuck me? First. Jesse had so wanted his face where Wyatt's had been, so he got on his knees, spread Taylor's thighs. He loved the way she smelled. He breathed her in deeply. And then he gently parted her lips, and the wetness was beyond. He marveled at how those he'd known to have found their squirt could bring it so quickly again and again, mostly with adept fingers and some with intense mouthwork. And so he focused all of his attention on Taylor, while Wyatt, who'd never been with Willow before, got on his knees and stared her in the eye and nodded and grinned, she leaned in and met his mouth with hers, and it was instantly good between them, and they kept at it. Jessie was making quick work of Taylor's spot, two fingers pulling back in a rhythm, fingers that were partners in crime with his tongue on her slippery clint, her right hand gripping his hair while her left one squeezed her own nipples hard, the tweaks of which she felt between her legs, which were trembling with Jessie's perfect head. Now, Willow loved Wyatt's kissing, but she wanted him in another way, especially knowing his thick cock hadn't penetrated or even been touched or sucked by Taylor earlier. She felt he was due, and she knew she was overdue, and so Willow stopped kissing him for the moment, reached down between his legs and gripped his shaft and said, Stand up. And he did, and she took his head between her lips and she worked it like a big, fat, tasty sucker, which it was. And she tongued his pre-cum, and it was sweet. And she rounded that plump head some more. And she started running her tongue around its rim and up and down on a special spot just below. And then Willow showed Wyatt exactly how she really liked to suck cock, corkscrewing his shaft in one hand and on the downstroke firmly drawing it into her mouth nearly all the way while his firm ass rocked forward and back and forward and back. Willow was a wonder. The cameras were picking up all of it, the breathing, the moaning, the sucking, the licking, and suddenly Taylor pushed Jesse back just a bit, and the work he was doing down below suddenly paid off as she unloaded all over his face and his hair with a stream of warm and wet. It ran down the leather couch and onto the rug, and some of it ran under her ass, and... When her body stopped shuddering, Taylor pulled Jesse's kneeling body onto her, and his cock drove all the way inside and pumped her. There would be no rest, but he felt his knees getting sore on the floor, so he grabbed beneath her ass and said, hold tight, and she gripped his arms, and he laid his back onto the rug, and now she was on top, and soon she was no longer going up and down, but she was grinding, keeping him deep inside her, and she ground harder 
and he helped her by gripping her ass and driving her around in circles until she couldn't take it any longer again. So she let go one more time, soaking his body with what was left inside of her. She collapsed onto Jesse's chest, and he pulled her in tight, and he kissed her. And all the while, Willow was sucking away on Wyatt's big cock, while imagining how it would fill her deep and wide, and she said, You need to fuck me with that thing. And so he, already standing, said, Up you come, and took Willow by the hands and lifted her up and walked her around the back of the couch and set her there, so she was still facing him. She spread her legs, gripped his ass, and pulled him in tight. And Wyatt, wanting to play to the camera, gave it a better view by lifting her legs and resting them both on his shoulders so her pussy was exposed and full of his cock, and it felt exactly how she'd imagined, tight, but her wetness made it glide so easily all the way in and almost all the way out where he'd hold it before driving it home again. And the more Willow's nails dug into his ass, the harder he drove. Until she dug into him so hard he was certain that she was drawing blood. And he liked it. And he kept driving. And then before Wyatt nearly unloaded, he slowed and stopped and he withdrew, putting his own ass on the back of the couch grabbing Willow and positioning her atop his cock and bounced her up and down a bit with the same force he'd been driving head on. And then he slowed again, making sure her pelvis was grinding his too, and Wyatt said, Can you come this way, Willow? She said, Don't stop. Keep doing that. Just like that. And so he did. And soon she was there, shuddering and laughing as she came. Now you can imagine... After an afternoon of thinking about it, and a dinner of thinking some more about it, and then the two of them taking care of Taylor on the island, and then on the couch, and welcoming Willow to the party too, Jesse and Wyatt were really ready to come. Taylor grinned and looked at Willow and said, Well, fuck me, that was hot. And Willow said, I needed that. And Taylor said, I know you're both dying to get off, right? Willow gave it some thought, and then looking at Wyatt, and then at Jesse, said, From the minute you two met, you were both wondering, weren't you? Taylor piped up, I know you, Wyatt. You wanna. Willow added, Jesse, you always said a hard man is good to find. Both men were smiling, and hard, and so they got down to it. And I mean got down, for the camera even. Now, if you've never seen two men in 69 finding their rhythm and hammering it home until they're both left drained, you don't know what you're missing. The only thing better is being one of them. Or so we hear. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. Please take me by to the Blue Hotel. The Blue Hotel Podcast, just about every Thursday at midnight Eastern. Follow, listen, enjoy, rate, review, share, repeat. Till next time, I'm Jeff Woods.
come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com.